Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And I'm in for Greg Corumbus. My name is Greg Knapp. You can find out more about me, and I'm even giving you a free gift at gregorybnapp.com. I also have a new podcast up. You can find out all the information for that in the show notes. And I'm joined, as always, by Jim Garrity. He is the senior political correspondent of National Review. His Twitter handle, at Jim Garrity. And if you don't know how to spell that, well, okay. <laughs> Join the I'll- club. We'll put that in the, in the show notes as well. <laughs> All right, today's Three Martini Lunch brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. This is the Three Martini Lunch. We will start with a good one. Here we go, Jim. Debates round two, the Democrats ready. And hey, listen, if you're not getting any kind of attention, you've got to go on the attack tonight, right? Yeah, and according to the leaks from the various campaigns and camps, most of the candidates are expected to. Um, As I talk about in today's Morning Jolt newsletter, the threshold for that third debate is significantly higher. So if you are a John Delaney or a Tim Ryan, uh, or maybe even a John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado, look, if you don't make a splash tonight, you're probably not going to be in on that, that, uh, that debate stage for the third time. So this is it. This is, as I was saying, you know, uh, go Thunderdome or go home. And it's going to be kind of fascinating to see with you have 10 candidates up on that stage really trying to go at each other. You know, to the extent we remember anything out of that first debate, it probably is the uh, exchange between Biden and Kamala Harris. Maybe some folks remember Castro, you know, kind of beating up Beto O'Rourke a bit. This is the basically, you know, people realize confrontation is how you have one of those memorable moments that ends up going viral and playing on the news the next night and being repeated on cable news and all that kind of stuff. All of the traditional, I believe that children are our future, teach <laughs> them well and let them lead the way. You know, all that traditional rhetoric does not break through when you've got nine other candidates on that stage saying the same thing. So, okay. um, Jim, from now on, anytime you do that kind of a quote, I need to hear you actually sing it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear that. Standard, um, empty blather political line for quite some time you're the first That's person right. who's asked me to imitate uh <laughs> whitney houston yes yeah but if you like it so basically if you like infighting i think tonight's gonna just be a buffet table yeah and i'll tell you the thing that i thought was most entertaining last time was marianne williamson saying all you need is love so i i'm actually looking forward to what she's gonna say tonight yeah there's also this kind of this intriguing uh a uh, lengthy article in Rolling Stone by Matt Tavy of Tavy, I believe his name is. Uh, not always my favorite uh, uh, writer, but he, he is, I think, a very astute assessment. And his conclusion is Democrats are going to blow 2020, which is probably not what Rolling Stone readers want to hear. And mm-hmm. but he's been spending a lot of time with the candidates in Iowa. And it's interesting. He talks about Marianne Williamson, who act, who says Trump was not a political campaign; he was a phenomenon, and you're only going to beat him with another phenomenon. Marianne Williamson says a lot of crazy things, but this is not one of them. This is probably a reasonably accurate assessment. And you know, he makes the observation that you know there's this giant gap between what politicians promise and what ends up getting delivered. And I think you know, the, the, so the phrase is the, this gap between reality and political proclamation is what opened the door for Trump in 2016. You know, each time some candidate comes along and promises, you know, if, if Biden doesn't specifically deliver, we're going to cure cancer But when I'm president. You know, <laughs> I'm going to cover your health care. I'm going to cover your college insurance. I'm going to cover your daycare. I'm going to forgive all your student loans. People have heard a lot of promises, and I think they're kind of cynical about them. And it takes probably much greater either charisma or just sheer force of personality to convince people that you're going to deliver on those promises. 
totally agree. And of course, part of what Trump was is he agreed with what you just said, that all politicians have done is promise, promise, nothing's happened. It's all the same. It's the swamp. It's the establishment. And you need something different. And that resonated with a lot of people to the point that they really didn't care what Trump said or did or stood for. They just wanted something different and somebody that maybe had enough power being a billionaire that he could do something. I, I think that was a big part of this. And maybe on the Democratic side, it's somebody like Marianne Williamson. Because a lot of what she says resonates with a lot of people who are angry and, quote, resistance people. I hate to use that word because I can't believe they have demeaned what the French resistance was. But you know what I mean? Where th this is maybe this is maybe she's a vice president candidate with the Democrats to show that there's something different or new. Um, or, or maybe she's just doing it to sell more books and make more money. Yeah. I like half of these candidates are. I don't know. You can find a very interesting thread of thought that could basically be summarized as uh, a growing economy and an increasing material wealth has not has not worked to, to heal the spiritual problems of the country. Mm -hmm. And you could probably find a decent number of folks on the religious right who believe that. You could probably say a good portion of the uh, Sorab Amari crowd, <laughs> you know, the Tucker Carlson populist crowd might agree with some of that. Um, that, you know, all, everything we're hearing from Marianne Williamson, it sounds kind of touchy-feely. I don't know if it's necessarily an area that government policy is well-suited to uh, to apply to, but there is kind of this sense of, hey, you know, even as, at a time of prosperity, something's gone terribly wrong in this country. And I think this that you know, that's a message that's always going to resonate with a lot of people. Whether it makes people decide to vote for Marianne, Marianne Williamson is another story, though. Absolutely. I guess it all depends on the numbers. Yeah. That is martini number one. It was a good one. We'll see what happens tonight. Get ready. And then we move on to the bad martini after we hear a little bit about NetSuite by Oracle. Speaking of numbers, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and human resources instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com forward slash martini. That's netsuite.com forward slash martini to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits. One last time, that is netsuite.com forward slash martini. There you go. And we can put that in the show notes to make it easy for you too. Let's move on to martini number two, the bad martini. This story just keeps getting worse. It's about the USA gymnastics team. You remember the women who were sexually uh, harassed, abused by Larry Nassar and, and people were covering this up. Well, now we've got even more information. Here's a little bit more about what's going on with Larry Nassar and the investigations. Olympic gold medalist Michaela Maroney first spoke to the FBI about the abuse back in 2015, but she told Savannah nothing happened. Were you wondering, hey, how come the FBI hasn't contacted us? Yeah, I think me and my mom, we both kept calling, trying to get information and be like, 
what's going on here? Like, why, why are things stalling? Now, the investigation has found that for 421 days, a year and two months, the FBI, the U.S. Olympic Committee, and USA Gymnastics all failed to act, or even warn Michigan State University, where Dr. Nasser worked, that he was sexually abusing athletes. How does this happen? I, I'm. I, this is one of those stories, Jim, that the more I read about it and see about it, I, I'm just stunned. And I guess I'm naive. I just don't understand how so many adult so-called responsible people knew about something this horrific and did nothing. Yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, as much as you're like, oh, my God, this is a horrible story we find it has a worse angle or, or a worse ramifications from it, not just from the abuse, but all the people who are in some position who at the very least could have done more. If, if you, you know, report it and nobody acts on it or you send it up the chain or something like that. But look, this is not all that different from the proclaiming that, that Harvey Weinstein was an open secret in Hollywood. Not all that different, perhaps, from what we're hearing about the, the Epstein scandal up in New York and the idea of all the number of people in high society in Fort Lauderdale and up in New York and down in the Caribbean who kind of knew what was going on there. We have a real problem in this country and perhaps, you know, in, in, in many countries about what happens when you hear about abuse on this, this kind of scale by someone who's in a powerful or protected position. And, you know, it's, we're talking about, you know, topics that could or should come up in the democratic debate. And you talk about things that have gone wrong in this country. This is a big one. Um, and it was, you know, the idea that Nasser could have this, you know, be this kind of a monster, that's horrible enough. The idea that there could be reports that he was doing these sorts of things and nobody really moved on it, even the Federal Bureau of Investigation, really sends a chill down your spine and kind of gives you this attitude. Like we, we do a lot of, we, we pay lip service. We say we care about these sorts of things. We say we, this kind of behavior is unacceptable. We say that we would stand against it. But far too often, you know, people get these kind of reports and either move slowly or, or not at all. And this wasn't even like, say, 20, 30 years ago, Jim, where, you know, it, it was more of, well, you know, did she really do this? Did he really do it? People weren't believed as much. This is 2015 and 2016. You know, this yeah. is, you know what I mean? And, and I understand, I can understand and rationalize. It's still totally wrong. Don't misunderstand, but I, okay, well, Michigan state didn't want the bad, the bad publicity. Okay. The Olympic committee didn't want the bad publicity. The FBI should not be worried about reputations and bad publicity. They should be doing their job and putting a dude in prison. Yeah. I, there there kind of is this, this, you know, sense of, well, what were you guys doing? Uh, what did you need to hear to move faster on this? What did you need to yeah. you know? Um, you know, is it an axe murderer? I mean, you know, what what's the threshold before you'd move really fast uh, on something like that? And uh, you know, the other thing is also in each one of these cases that I mentioned, Weinstein, Nasser, Epstein. Look, we all know, uh, particularly after the the you know high profile fight over Brett Kavanaugh, you know, the fear, you know, fears of false accusations, fears of uh, he said, she said, or or you know things like that. But, you know, you look at the Bill Cosby where it was he said and then about 37 she says. Exactly. Uh, Nasser with more than 100 accusations. <laughs> Weinstein, Epstein. With, you know, like after the first 100 accusations, I stopped giving you the benefit of the doubt. Couldn't agree more. I loved Bill Cosby. Grew up on him. The first time it came out, I'm like, no, that can't be true. About the 30th time, I'm like, yeah, uh, that's probably really true and really, really bad. That is martini number two, the bad martini. We'll keep an eye on that. And these women need some kind of justice. Uh, obviously, it never makes anything right, but at least you get some justice out of it. Martini number three, crazy town. So who is who is ready for 
Beto O'Rourke to move right up, slip into the nomination for the Democratic Party. Well, he has one very strong supporter, Jim, his mama. What's going on with Mama O'Rourke? Sure. This is uh, over at the uh, Dallas Morning News. Uh, Alfredo Corchado, the border Mexico correspondent for the newspaper, had a chance to speak to Melissa O'Rourke, a businesswoman who says she tilts Republican and rarely gives advice to her son, but she does have some unsolicited tips as for tonight's debate. Get to the point quicker, be more concise, button up your coat. Um, I don't know about you, Greg, but I'm, I'm, I can hear my mom making the exact same comments. Um, but it was, you know, so there's an old saying in Jersey, because I remember Neera Tandon of uh, Center for American Progress had this sort of issue. An old saying amongst reporters, if you ever get a chance, talk to the candidate's mother, right? If you're doing a profile on somebody, talk to the mother. She will inevitably have fascinating stories about the subject of your story. On the other hand, you know, some people might find this kind of stuff a little invasive or, or you know, getting meddling into stories that were not meant to be told, shared outside the family or something. Uh, I think many of us with mothers who love us and who like to sometimes let us know how to do things and or nag us will relate to this. Melissa O'Rourke says that her son, probably his biggest mistake to me was when I heard he was at the dentist's office. <laughs> obviously the time when he live streamed it. Quote, all he wanted to talk about was the hygienist and her story, but that obviously didn't come through. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure right now Beto O'Rourke is reading the Dallas Morning News and thinking, thanks, mom. But uh, that's where yep. it is. And she says she'll be ready to go out and kick some tush uh, tonight, although she didn't use the word tush. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's always good to have mom on the record, I guess. Uh, here's the thing. I have two things on Beto and would love your thoughts, Jim. First, I thought in the first debate, he looked like a little boy totally out of his depth when Julian Castro went after him. Mm -hmm. Uh, he he looked like he was shell shocked. Uh, he was stumbling, mumbling, didn't know what to do. I just he did not look presidential at all to me. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I think one of the things that I I, I probably write about and discuss better or work more than he deserves, and certainly in terms of his poll standing and in terms of what will probably be his ultimate impact on the twenty twenty presidential race. On the other hand, I believe the entire Icarus-like story of Beto O'Rourke over the past two years or so is a really vivid example of um, the way the how, how how easily most of the mainstream media can succumb to the desire to see what they want to see. This is basically the same guy he was two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was driving Beto O'Rourke for most of 2017 and 2018 was the fact that the press absolutely hated Ted Cruz and they wanted to see a winner, thus they convinced themselves that he was a winner, and a whole bunch of traits that struck some of us as not all that impressive, the skateboarding, the playing the guitar, there was kind of this, you know, overgrown teenager uh, uh, aura to better or work. They convinced themselves that he was the second coming of, of uh, John F. Kennedy or Robert F. Kennedy, depending on your preference, when in fact the only thing he really had that was Kennedy-esque was a driving record. Um, Ouch. That, that's, you know, it's a, the, you know, watching, you know, Bader O'Rourke come crashing back down to earth, um, besides my natural inclination to enjoy telling people, see, I told you so. Um, it's the sort of thing that should make pol every political journalist who went down there and wrote that gushing profile should kind of go back and say, hmm, was he really as good as I thought he was? Or was I just, you know, so driven by what I wanted to see in this uh, particular Senate race that I was blinded to the fact that in the end he was really nothing special? And uh, I don't think they'll, they'll make that kind of thinking, but this is the kind of moment where I feel like, oh, okay, I, I do see the world clearly, at least compared to some other folks. Yeah, and the second thing I wanted to mention, every Democrat is trying to show that they are more 
woke than the next. So he has invited three young black men from Michigan who, as high school football players, followed some of the NFL players' examples and kneeled for the national anthem before the football game. So he has invited them as his guests to the event tonight. It doesn't seem like he's following Rahm Emanuel's advice that we talked about yesterday. Yeah, again, you know, it was very interesting because early on, when Beto did, you know, first jumped into the race and was jumping on top of the counters in the diners in Iowa and things like that, his speeches were very generic, but they were very full of hope and optimism and change. And people thought, oh my goodness, he's going with the 2007, 2008 Barack Obama playbook. And I'm not so sure that that was the worst possible option for him because clearly he's not a policy wonk. Um, clearly, you know, he's by, by on scale of like an Elizabeth Warren or something like that. Um, he do, he's not going to win this in an identity politics fight because he's, you know, just another straight white male. Um, his record in Congress is pretty darn thin. So, you know, that, that was the avenue that was most natural to him. And so, you know, play the postpartisan uniter, you know, be that blank slate that people can project those ideals onto. Uh, you could make an interesting argument that he, you know, considering how he came within two and a half to three points of, uh, of Ted Cruz, that if he had, you know, not run as a hard liberal planning to ban the AR-15 and eliminate ICE and, and all these other stances that he took, uh, that he had a, he might have been able to pull it off against Ted Cruz. Now, I actually think probably the best, his one real shot against Ted Cruz would be if Ted Cruz had taken it for granted. Early on, the Cruz campaign knew that they were, you know, not dealing with a typical Texas Democrat campaign mobilize their voters and, you know, things turn out okay for Ted Cruz. But, you know, if he had played the role of the Democratic centrist, maybe he would do that. And if you're, you know, look, we've all seen the weaknesses in Biden. Let's say Biden goes out and has a terrible performance tomorrow night. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of Democratic centrists, the folks who are not particularly woke, who are not looking for a Bolshevik revolution, uh, might be shopping around for a new candidate. And Beto could be in position to, th to, to scoop that up if he was willing to take that lane and I, it, for whatever reason, he chooses not to. There you go. That is the three martini lunch. My name is Greg Knapp in for Greg Columbus. Find out more about me and get a free gift at gregorybnapp.com and find out more about my uh, podcast, not about politics in the show notes. And Jim Garrity, always with us, senior political correspondent of natural review, Twitter handle at Jim Garrity, check it all out in the show notes. We'll see you again next time for the three martini lunch.